Hi, More Than This listener. Dave here. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider leaving a positive review on iTunes. It's quick to do, and it will help more people discover the show. Thanks for listening. You're listening to More Than This, the podcast where Christian faith and reason explore reasons for Christian faith. Life's not a sequence program from the sky. Life's a story woven up, down, in and out, like the stitches in If you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Check out our site at www.patreon.com forward slash more than this pod. Thank you. This week, I interview Bill Christensen, a pastor overseeing international ministry at an ethnically diverse church. We discuss how to meet the relational needs of international folks in our communities. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to More Than This. It's just going to be me flying solo this week on the hosting side, but uh, Kate could not make it on this one. She will be chagrined for sure. Uh, So uh, I have a special guest today with me. Uh, Bill Christensen is here. You may remember uh, a guest we had a few months back named Brooke Christensen. That's not an accident. Uh, Brooke is Bill's daughter. Uh, and very excited to have this family connection and have Bill on today. Uh, welcome, Bill, to the podcast. It's great to be here, David. Now, Bill, what's the topic I wanted to bring you on because uh, you are you are a singular person in my life. I my my wife and I talk about you and your wife and your fa- your family all the time, and that uh, Bill and Bill and his family always open their home to us for holidays. So. We have family in the area, but we, we we're taken in like orphans. Uh, it's, it's great. It's great. Bill and his wife will have us in. And uh, when we go over, the guest list always seems to expand, and it seems to expand in a, uh, I'll say, non-English speaking direction. So a multilingual my, gathering. It's a multilingual <laughs> gathering. So it is always the most joyous time. Um, and the language gap seems to sort of disappear. I don't speak any of the other languages, but I always have a good time and we're signing and, you know, using broken phrases, but, uh, there may be 24 people in the room and, and only four of them speak English and it's just, <laughs> just the best time. So yeah, t- today we're going to be talking about how to, how to befriend people who are uh, internationals, who are, who are foreigners to our culture. And, uh, Bill, I, you just have a wealth of experience. Um, I'm wondering if just by way of uh, introduction, though, you could sort of say uh, what you do right now for, for work and how that kind of ties into your work with the international community. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, right now I'm serving as the international ministries pastor uh, here at the church uh, that I'm a part of here in Columbus. And uh, it's a uniquely um, opportune time to do that because of everything that's been happening in Columbus. There are so many internationals that are moving into Columbus um, for, of course, many, many different reasons. But um, last I heard, I think we're the second fastest growing foreign-born population city in uh, the whole country, and which is pretty interesting because Columbus never had that kind of reputation before, but it's really changing fast now. You know, even even today, I was listening to something as, as odd. I think it was uh, sports radio, and they were talking about sort of national conceptions of Ohio. And they, you know, that derisive term, uh, was it a flyover state? Ohio's kind yeah. of a flyover state, and they probably think it's kind of milk toast white. 
And on the ground, it really just isn't the case here in Columbus. Yeah. I did not know what you said, that it was the fast, fastest growing or, you know, second largest or second fastest growing. That's, that's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, and it makes sense of um, the church that we, we – so I go to the bill uh, – to the bill. I go to the church that Bill, Bill pastors <laughs> The in. Bill Church? The Bill Church. You don't want to go to that church. <laughs> I, I do. I do. Uh, it, it's, it would be a great church. But uh, yeah, Bill, you're on staff at, the, at a, a quite large church and probably demographically quite a lot different than most of the churches you would step into on average in the U.S. Yeah. Can you, can you say a little bit like what the church is like here and how it's become that way? Yeah, well, we're a large church. Several thousand people come here on the weekends. Uh, but we're comprised right now of uh, one out of every six adults in our church is foreign-born. Uh, last count, 131 different nations. Uh, one out of four adults in our church are African-American. And so it's like a wonderful experience to walk in to a building and just see what looks like all the palette of skin tone and ethnicities going on right, right here. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, it might ring funny to a lot of churches to hear that you, this church has an international pastor. Uh, and even if you did, they might assume that you weren't very busy if you held that role in a lot of churches. <laughs> but uh, I think you're, I think you're quite busy, Bill. What kind of, what kind of things do you get up to in your role on staff here? Well, we, um, we are trying to do whatever we can to try to, um, in practical ways, communicate welcome to immigrants who have moved in here to Central Ohio. So we offer English as a second language classes. Uh, we have a lot of people who come in for that, uh, and they come from all around the world. Um, we also have had, uh, in recent years, uh, up until just recently, quite an influx of refugees um, and one big wave uh, before I came uh, to Columbus was uh, from the Somali population. And then some of the subsequent waves have been uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, and now most recently Bhutan and Nepal are, are big areas. And, uh, and, you know, we want them to be able to thrive in this new culture and all. And English is a big, really important uh, avenue there. Uh, and then also we do a lot of uh, work helping their children who are in school and also helping them as parents to learn English so that they can. It's so hard for a family to have their child in school learning in a language that the parents don't understand. So how can they really help them with homework and and also just adjusting to the different system of education that we have here? So we help out in that way, too. No, it's, it's interesting. As I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm I'm hearing maybe a couple different uh, portions of our audience maybe listening. Because I, I don't know the demographics of our audience very well, but I know some of them probably skew more conservative uh, in their, their church practices and theology, and probably some of them more on the liberal side. And there's always that classic debate in churches in America about you know, sometimes it, it's it's lauded and sometimes it's a really bad thing to talk about the social gospel. Uh, and you, people tend to sort of fall on one side or the other where it's all about sort of, you know, converting people and getting people saved. And that's the best thing that you can give them up front. And then other people would say, well, no, let's just give social programming and try to make life better here. And I feel like uh, the church here sort of tries to cut down the middle of that, right? They try to, they try to be both and and not either or in that yeah. regard. 
So it sounds really, uh, I really appreciate uh, the church's approach. It's one of the reasons that Karen and I come here that we do reach out with no strings attached. Um, I don't know if you listened to the episode, Bill, uh, where Jay Pathak, uh, a friend of both of ours who used to be on staff here at the church as well, was on and he was talking about ultimate and ulterior motives. Mm, and somebody yeah. somebody sort of uh, accused him in the community of, of wanting to convert people. And he said, well, ultimately, I think I think Jesus is, is good news. And I, I would like everybody to know Jesus. He's like, but that's not, you know, I don't have an ulterior motive. That's my ulti- that's my ultimate motive. But right now, I just want to provide, he was, they were doing after school programming for kids in the area. And it wasn't this sort of like subterfuge for getting people the gospel and slipping them tracks and, you know, putting them in weird situations. And I, and I, from what I understand of all the ministries here that we have for people coming in, there are no sort of theological strings attached to them. Yeah. Yeah. There's no conditionality on, on, you know, receiving the benefits of relationship that have to be, you know, predicated by making some sort of faith statement uh, that, I mean, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, it's pretty broad. It is very broad. It's not like love your neighbor by sharing with them certain factual tenets about the gospel uh, and leave it at that, but it's loving people where they're at. And it wouldn't be loving if if I have a friend who I'm helping to learn English and they're really struggling with trying to find a job uh, and I not offer to pray for them or not offer to say in an appropriate way, you know, God cares about your situation, cares about your family. And so if you're comfortable with it, would you like me to pray for you? You know, that God would be on your side to get you a job. So I just think that this, you know, in in, in the history of especially the American church, mm-hmm. this somehow this line got drawn between – you know, either you are liberal social gospel or you are conservative, uh, you must be converted and born again only. Right. And so I and I I'm excited to see that I think I think there are some uh, there's some evidence of that beginning to change, I think, more. I think so too. And I've I've been in your house when we've we've offered a, a a blessing, you know, and we've had a lot of Muslim uh, folks in the room, and and everybody is just it's well received, right? It's just very well received, and it's it's been beautiful uh, to, to witness that. I think on the ground, uh, the people who are actually involved, if you get involved, a lot of those lines blur, and then they just become less important in the actual context of relationship. Yeah. Like you said, the benefits of relationship. I love that because that when you aren't from here, that is a benefit. Having a relationship with someone who has more cultural savvy and knowledge and speaks the language better, that, that is a great, that's an invaluable benefit, right? Yeah, it sure is. Not, not in a government assistance way. That is a real life practical thing that people really need. And, and I might add, it's of extraordinary benefit to me as a native born American. So it's not like it's just me dispensing benefit to them, but I... Am such a, I think, a better person, uh, a richer person because of the relationships that I've been able to have with people from other cultures as well. Yeah, it's, and it's I was where it was gonna 
I, I, I hate the term white savior, but I was going to say like, this is not a white savior sort of thing where we're, we're saying we, we own all the sort of universal goods and we sort of dole them out. Yeah. No, but that's, that's well said. And I, I'd love to, to hear more about that as we go on to just because I know it is deeply reciprocal for you. Uh, and that's, that's authentic, right? That's what people really, really pick up on in you. Um, it's interesting. I know you, you do speak several languages, I think, Bill. But I don't I fumble at you, several languages. You fumble, but you do you do speak Arabic? Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the uh, Western uh, African Moroccan dialect dialect of Arabic and French also. Okay, and any Spanish? I forget. No. Yeah, same. Me un poquito. I think is about all I know how to say. And that was I can probably get wrong. into a restaurant and then stop at the bathroom on my way out, and that's yeah. about it. Yeah, and order whatever I ordered. I can probably get cheese on it, whether it goes on it or not. <laughs> I can, I can, that's right. <laughs> it's about all I can get around. Cheese is to. always good. <laughs> it's always good. Yeah, yeah, even if it doesn't quite go with the dish, I always welcome the cheese. Um, so I, I'm curious, just in terms of your background, uh, how did you and your family start really meeting and working with with foreign-born families? Was there a turning point in your life? And what? tell me a little bit about your background there. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in an environment that one would maybe generalize and say, how in the world would you ever be involved with international? Small farm town in Indiana. I learned two or three Spanish phrases, which to my chagrin were uh, curse words that we shouted across the highway to the children of migrant workers in the canning factory we had in our town. So that was my initial exposure to cross-cultural communication, which uh, was awful. Uh, but then I ended up going uh, uh, away. Um, and uh, as a teenager, I was uh, I went up to northern Michigan, then to Colorado, finally to the University of Cincinnati. And that was where I really got exposed to, shall I say, the other um, someone who was not a white native-born American, um, and proximity uh, and people telling their stories was what really helped me to be able to um, understand their their humanity, um, and and I found that I really learned so much from. Uh, learning about different cultures, uh, and that, that was that was kind of how it started. A little bit later on, uh, I went to a conference, and I heard a gentleman talk about his experience of living in uh, Afghanistan, and he talked about Muslims. I had no idea in the world what a Muslim was, but in a very strange way, I just thought somehow with some part of my life, I need to be able to engage in a loving way with Muslims. And um, and then around that time, uh, Dottie and I were married, and we tried a couple of relationships with a young Palestinian couple when we were living in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, a young Iranian couple. And honestly, I felt it went pretty not good, <laughs> not well. It was, you know— we were trying to help out. Uh, you could say we wanted to help this uh, young bride, Palestinian bride, uh, and Dottie would offer to take her to the grocery store, and her husband would say, no, 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 that's my job. And we didn't understand culturally what was going on, so we made a lot of just 
boneheaded mistakes. Um, but at the same time, I realized like it kind of really didn't matter a lot because people were terribly understanding. Um, and I think I, I learned at that point that just kind of taking a step forward, maybe making some mistakes or two, but just saying I'm sorry when I realized I was making a mistake was really okay. People were pretty gracious with us. That That is really interesting. I did not know you went to University of Cincinnati either. Somehow mm-hmm. you didn't know you were a Bearcat. I was, yeah. Background. And I looked down on the people in Columbus living in Cowtown back in the day because that was what it was called. It is not anymore. <laughs> it has gone yeah, it's undergone quite a shift, but yeah. it used to be, yeah, people would, would talk about it derisively. Yep, yeah. Caltown. Uh, that, but I love what you said, too, just about um, – there's a lot of what I want our listeners to get is I think a lot of times we have an impulse to help people and to, to get to know people. I Sometimes uh, coming to church where we where you, you are and I, and I go, um, I see people, and, and a lot of times I'm a perfectionist. And I want the, my language to be perfect. Like I want to be fluent in Arabic before I talk to someone from a Muslim country that speaks Arabic. And, you know, and that, that will kind of hold me back. It still does. Uh, but I know that to be true. If the shoe were on the other foot, I would just, I would be so happy that somebody's trying to make contact with me and I would be more gracious. I feel like sometimes I don't want to get political, but the progressive left gets much more uptight about clamping down on cultural insensitivity. And that certainly can be a problem. But getting a few things wrong and apologizing and just, I think people do have a lot more forgiveness for that. And I, I think I want our audience to really hear that too, just that um, you're, it's okay to, to look a little foolish as long as you're, you're really, really trying and, and, and apologize yeah. when, when you get it wrong. Don't be incensed. You yeah. know. Just don't get all culturally constipated. Like, you know, it's just like <laughs> culturally you know, constipated. Just, just Engage. You know, people will come to me, and people in the church will come to me and say, somebody from India just moved into the cube next to me at work. What do I do? And and I, I'm thinking, like, uh, how about offer to have a cup of tea? How about, you know, get a get a glass of water at the at the water fountain together or or just uh, say hi. Hello I mean, is good. Honestly, that that would that would be a step. Yeah, and and that's a good step. Uh, to to take it's not, and it's not as hard as I think we sometimes make it out to be. If I and I know I know this, I'm cheating because I do have some background knowledge of you. I believe you you and your family also ended up you raised your family in part in in Morocco mm-hmm. as well, which is right. which is why you said you spoke a certain right. uh, dialect of Arabic or mm-hmm. a strain of Arabic. So how did how did that happen, and how was that experience for you? Well, uh, my wife and I were newly married, and I did have this sense that uh, I wanted to go and live in a Muslim country for a couple of years. Um, That was back in the day when, in Christian terms, a short-term mission was two years long. Uh, Now it's two weeks. Uh, But um, so we, we wrote a bunch of organizations, and all of them wrote back and said, thank you, but no thanks. And then it just didn't go away. Uh, so a year later, and by this time now we've been married a year, we wrote all of them back again and got a letter back from one of them saying, we would really like to talk with you. And uh, fast forward six months later, we were on an airplane to France uh, to learn French, studying at a university in the south of France. 
to go then to Algeria. Uh, and it was like, we're going to just, we're going to give two years and see what happens. You know, no big deal. Um, after we were in France for four of the six months getting ready to go, we found out that the, uh, the missionaries in Algeria had all been kicked out of the country. So we're not going to Algeria. Oh, what wow. do we do next? Uh, and, uh, we kind of, uh, thought, well, you know, we prayed, uh, the people with the organization we were working with says, well, there's an opening to come to Casablanca. So we moved to Casablanca and, um, and there we had an ex, a wonderful experience interacting with fellow young adults there, Moroccans of, most of them were quite poor. Uh, some of them lived in what in French is called Bidonville, which is like a tin can village, a ghetto, a slum. Uh, and they had never met another uh, Christian uh, of their age group. And so we just immediately had this wonderful bond of uh, friendship and relationship. And along the way, uh, I decided that I really enjoyed teaching English as a second language. And that's where I kind of a career change because my undergraduate was in mathematics and the thought of teaching math in the French language was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I, we taught English there, Dottie and I both, and had a wonderful experience there for the next year and a half. That I'm wondering, because I've, like, like we've established, you are uh, sort of effortless at this point in befriending international uh, here, internationals here. What do you think it did in your life to have the experience of being an international displaced somewhere else, uh, moving somewhere else. Uh, how did, how did that sort of build in the way you look at, uh, how you befriend people from international community now? Yeah. Do, you, do you think that helped? Or? Yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. Because the prevailing question, uh, that I had in our two years, uh, there in Casablanca and then later nine years in Fez, uh, particularly around, you know, if there were, troubling events or something like that, or, you know, you just have a tough day. That question is always in my, the back of my mind was, am I welcome here? Hmm. And, and that's what I think I'm trying to uh, remember when I'm interacting with uh, internationals here in central Ohio. I know they're asking the same question. Um, am I welcome? Am I welcome here? And, and so that just made a huge difference uh, for me. Now, as it happened, we were living in a culture that um, one of the highest values in Moroccan culture, and that's true of Arab culture in general, is hospitality. So it's a matter of personal honor and also honor to a family that they're welcoming. You, you go to Morocco to this day, I could show up in the train station of any city, and if I wanted to, I wouldn't have to go to a hotel. I would be, I, 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 people would be warm with me. I could sit in a coffee shop, and within a half an hour, somebody would say, come to my house. Okay. Uh, and so the, the degree of hospitality is so important. And, and how, even though this is a culture that's a, uh, from a religious standpoint, a Muslim culture, they have grasped something of 
Jesus culture of hospitality uh, that's extraordinary that I think we, we have much to learn from. I think I veered off of your question. I'm sorry, but oh, no, it's that just was about the, the hospitality. I, I feel like I want to return something of what, of what they have given to me living overseas. Now, I, I remember too, and I don't know if this was your experience, but uh, I've, I've known people who have lived in the Los Angeles area in Southern California talking about you know what we can learn in terms of hospitality. I remember my brother and sister-in-law lived in Los Angeles and were part of a church there for, I think, about four years. And uh, they had a couple, and of course, they're from the Midwest. So if there is hospitality to be had, any beacons of hospitality, I think the South and the, and the Midwest are probably it in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But um, they made the Midwestern invitation to a California-based couple. You know, they're from L.A. They come over to their house for dinner. And... The couple came over to my brother and sister-in-law's apartment and had sat there for about five minutes in silence. And my brother and sister-in-law thought they, were, they had done something wrong. So they just they're like, are you okay? And they said, well, we've been going to this church for eight years and nobody's ever had us to their house before. Like in LA, everybody just says, oh, we should get together. Or we, my wife and I lived in Seattle for a while and all of our friends were from the Midwest. Uh, uh, like they were transplants. Uh, so in Seattle culture, they talk about the Seattle freeze. So that is quite a contrast. And also, uh, imagine coming, I'm just imagining coming the other way when you're from a, a hospitality based culture and then coming here. Um, I'm just, it makes me wonder, Bill, you talked about welcome and I think that's so powerful, but what do you think that, uh, people who come here as migrants, immigrants, refugees, internationals of, of all stripes, what do you think they sort of desire the most when they when they come here, when they get here? What do you think they need the most? What do you think they're longing for the most? Well, I think they are longing, uh, longing as I said, for welcome. Uh, and that doesn't always mean necessarily having to have everybody in your house all the time, but there's a, there's a hospitality of heart that's genuine. And I think one of the first ways that that evidences itself, and you see this in Jesus, is there are these little instances, these little phrases where he says, he looked at this person, he saw this person. And I think that seeing someone, like noticing them, um, and and that's that's like something that isn't automatic. Like, like the next time you go to Chipotle or Chick-fil-A, like stopping to notice who it is behind the counter serving you. Um, and for me, when I notice that more than likely they're not from the United States, just to simply say, how are you? And, and, I, and I really do want to know how they are. I know they're busy, so they're not going to go into a long story, but they've, at least they know they've been noticed by, by me. I was in a church in a more of a rural area here in Ohio, and uh, they asked me to come and talk about you know, engaging more uh, cross-culturally. And it was a group of about 20 people in the room. And uh, these were small group leaders and people who were involved in service in the church. And uh, and one person in the group says, well, we would, we, we're all for this thing about inter- in, engaging cross-culturally and all, but we don't have any immigrants in our city, in our town, to which... A woman raised her hand and says, excuse me, I'm from Guatemala. Wow. And so it, it's like 
this is somebody as a part of church and not just somebody who attends peripherally or something, but somebody who's like an integral part of the church and just the, 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 the idea of seeing. And, and that's true in the rural areas of America increasingly, not just the urban areas now. And you were talking about being raised in small town Indiana. I lived in Goshen, Indiana. Mm-hmm. I know you may know where that is, Bill. I do, yeah. It's a good Amish and Mennonite territory. Yeah. Goshen College is there, one of the, the Mennonite anchor universities or, or higher ed places. So, yeah. And uh, I was a large uh, infusion of, of Mexicans uh, mm-hmm. that had come. And so it, I'm everywhere I go, there's an international community of some stripe. And it's always, I'm always so fascinated, like, why Goshen? Mm. You know, like, why Goshen? Like, I didn't even know why I was there. Like, there's, there's always stories, there's always, and people tend to want to feel included. So, I mean, a lot of times there are enclaves. So if you see one one person from a, of a different nationality, there probably is a community forming in your area as well. That uh, So, yeah, just even noticing who it is that's around you. Yeah. Back in my hometown, Indiana, which by the way, Goshen would be like a megapolis compared to what what was it? What was your town? It's called Fowler, Indiana. It now has it was about three thousand, now it's down to two thousand. And it, there are more wind turbines blowing just about than residents uh, there. But I was talking to my sister a while back who still lives there, and I was saying, tell me What's going on in Fowler? Expecting, honestly, that there were none, none, no immigrants at all. And she said, uh, yeah, my, my hairdresser is from Puerto Rico. And then she starts to tick off people who have come, uh, who were, you know, were not born in the United States. And, and yeah, so it's, ha- it's happening and it's happening everywhere. So I love the, I love the idea, uh, like you said, of, of seeing and, and looking, I think we're, uh, it's interesting. We're such a, pol- you know, everybody talks about polarization right now, right? You know, we're in, a, we're in an election year and people kind of divide in red or blue. Uh, but interestingly, I, and I don't even know where I'm going with this. It just occurred to me, like, I, I don't think that people who are here uh, from another country probably have much of a, a dog in that fight, right? So it's like, we, we often talk past people. We talk about those people who are outside of us, the other, and we polarize, but the people who are actually talking about probably don't have much of a stake in it. And, and they're, they're, they're here. They're our neighbors. They're, they're in our community. So I think just, just seeing and extending that kindness, uh, can go a long way. And it's something pretty universally that you can do. It doesn't require fluency in another language or or deep cultural sensitivity and training. Uh, I think that's, I think that's well said. And, I just think of any time I've been new relatively anywhere, even if it's in, you know, culture that I'm very familiar with, going to a new job, going to a new school, those questions instantly come to mind and how much more so when everything about where you're living feels unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and, and, and probably it's hard not to sort of perceive it as kind of threatening or scary, right? Mm-hmm. Be- right. Because we, we are a really polarized uh, uh, culture around some of these actual issues as well. Um, I'm curious too, uh, this is one thing that I think that, that I'll use the church, uh, and I don't mean like the universal church, but the American church is probably pretty divided on, and you can kind of hear people sort of on either, either side of a political debate kind of justifying their position in theological or biblical terms or terms of their church. 
I'm just curious, you know, as, as a pastor and a longtime Christian, how does your Christian faith kind of inform your, uh, your, the way you befriend and, and attract people who are here from an international community? Well, um, I think that, you know, this might sound simplistic. Uh, I think it may be simple, but it's also profound that, um, you know, we live in this swirl and this soup of policy and all these different discussions about that. And often they are laced uh, with a thread of fear. Um, and in contrast to that, you know, Jesus talks about, you know, that famous story about the day when the, the sheep and the goats are going to be separated. And any any. And he says, and I was a stranger, a foreigner, and you welcomed me. Uh, and then he looks at the other group and he says, and I was a foreigner and you did not welcome me. To which both groups say, when did we ever see you as a foreigner? And he says, in so much as you did it to one of them, you did it to me. And that, you know, that is, that is not, um, he's not saying I'm, like a foreigner in that story, he's saying, I am identifying intimately with the foreigner. And, and so you, I think you can have a broad, a broad spectrum of discussion about certain policies, about you know immigration quotas and walls or not walls and things like that. But, but those policy discussions um, – whether it's in a kitchen table or if you're a politician, uh, for a Christian, they need to be informed, informed by the heart of Jesus that he has towards the foreigner, the heart that Jesus has towards the prisoner, the heart that Jesus has towards the hungry and the thirsty or the naked. And, and, and so um, I, I think I would say for me— um, I think I'm on safe ground if in my heart and with my behavior and with the behavior of my fellow brothers and sisters with whom I do life together, we're welcoming to the foreigner. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly have some pretty strong opinions about some policy decisions that are, that are being made right now, uh, and it, it it kind of sickens me to hear some of the rhetoric that goes with those discussions of uh, policy. And there's just a lot of, I think, a lot of untruth uh, about it too. You know, the implication that immigrants are criminals and, uh, you know, the, the, the empirical data does not bear that out. Immigrant families, immigrant uh, individuals are, uh, commit substantially less crimes than foreign-born Americans do. Um, the native native-born Americans. The, uh, excuse me. The native-born the native-born Americans. Yeah, sure. Do. And and so um, there, this idea that we're going to be overcome or something like that is just uh, it's not true. And I, I think at at its heart, uh, it's the question of what um, what are we looking at when we're looking at let's say. Um, the blessings of life, let's say. 
when we look at the blessings of life, are we looking at a, a pie uh, that has a fixed border and the more people who show up, the more n- narrow the slices have to be until you get down to where there's nothing left? Or do we view the blessings of life from a kingdom perspective that says uh, it starts with something small, it's a seed, it's a few loaves of bread and f- a few fish, but in God's hand, there's a multiplication that takes place. And, and it may not always be material multiplication, but there are all other forms of multiplication uh, that can go along with that that are very important. And, I, and, I, and I'm concerned about the thinking right now, and it's ironic that here we are, the, the safest, uh, you know, we have the biggest military, um, the richest perhaps ever in the history of humankind, and yet it seems like there's a culture of, of fear and scarcity. Scarcity. Yeah, that's, that's forming people's uh, thinking these days. And, you know, how we think is going to have a lot to do with how we, how we behave. That, man, so good. It takes me back, and I'd, I want to I press on this thread now, too. You talked earlier about, you know, we were talking about getting, you know, making sure we were steering clear of that white savior idea and uh, just all the the rich blessing that's come to you uh, in the heart of, of any relationship, but especially we were talking about relationship with foreigners. Um, and the idea of scarcity uh, actually takes that up and says it's all about what we our resources and what we have to give away, and they're the takers, not the givers. Foreigners are. So I'm really curious to hear from you because it's not just that you and your wife have decided, you know, on your own to befriend foreigners uh, and lived internationally. You also raised children there, uh, of, of which I'm friends with all three of your children. <laughs> and they're turned out awesome. Good job, you guys, by the way. And uh, maybe maybe I'll just work systematically to get your whole family on the podcast at some point, one, <laughs> one, by, one by one, because it'd be great conversations I could have with everybody. Uh-huh. But I'm wondering, just even as you, not just you and, and your wife, but as you think about your kids, raising your kids uh, in an international community, what have you experienced? What what has been that re- that return, that blessing that you've gotten? Like what? And I, because your kids don't seem resentful for having grown up with. I mean, they seem actually quite tuned in. And I know I know your eldest daughter the best, and mm-hmm. she misses like all of her international friendships, and she seeks them out here. Wow. You know, so what? Talk about some of the things you've experienced as blessing. Yeah. Uh, well, at the, at the family level, um, you know, living outside your home culture um, uh, really, uh, I think, has the effect of making a choice to where your your family has got a pretty solid anchor. Uh, uh, your home base becomes your family uh, that I think to some degree takes up or, or uh, makes up for the lack of geographical home base that you have, and so if you ask, uh, if you ask our kids, uh, you know, where's home, they'll hesitate. Uh, sure. And because uh, the 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 question begs a geographic answer, but in reality, for them, the 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 question is answered more like, where's the family? Where you know. Uh, where are we? And now we are 
on, uh, you know, we're spread all around, you know. Uh, we have one of ours back in town, which is lovely for the for the while, and we don't know how long that'll last, but have another, uh, our son lives in, in Europe right now, and our, our daughter in Southern California, and they're very much oriented towards uh, things cross-cultural people. Uh, and, um, and I... Uh, there's a lot of research uh, done uh, in this whole phenomenon called third culture kids right now. Uh, it started out at a Michigan State University, a professor there, but over the last several decades now, it's really developed into a pretty full-fledged field of study. And it's really interesting to see what happens uh, to children who are raised in a culture different than their parents' culture. So that, by that definition, our kids are third culture kids. Um, and watching, uh, there, there are way more strengths than there are weaknesses to this phenomena, uh, but it's, it's really fun to observe how, how quickly they seem to be able to move right into uh, different types of environments and be highly adaptive in that uh, environment. And so I, that's another thing that I think is going to be of real benefit to America as we have children growing up uh, with a heightened sense uh, uh, or capability of being adaptable um, uh, because that's, I think that's the future. That's the future of any society uh, if you can become more adaptable than, than a previous generation. So, yeah. That's really, I've seen that um, even in my job now because we live in, you know, people keep saying we live in an information age and things are changing. So something about, the culture you live in will be foreign to you because nothing's as static as it used to be. I mean, things always shift, but even in my job, I've been probably rewarded the most when I'm the most flexible and adaptable. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And inflexible people tend to not last long um, unless you've got big bucks and you're at the head of the organization. Even then your organization probably doesn't last that long. unless (laughs) you know. So so I I think it's really good what you say. I think that is great. I know... um, there's also because there's there's also uh, this is sort of Christian insider language, but there's a lot of uh, stereotypes around MKs, right, and PKs as well. Uh, so missionary kids and pastors' kids. So MKs, uh, you know, there there's there's sort of a sometimes sometimes it's probably exaggerated, but kind of a perceived dark side. Hmm. Uh, so. Um, you know, some to being a third culture kid. And a lot of times I hear, and I've counseled some third culture kids because uh, I've, I've worked in Christian colleges where a lot of missionary kids end up going mm-hmm. when they come back to the States, uh, is is sometimes that re- maybe more, more feeling unrooted or, or missing a, a, that, I, that identity portion that comes with feeling at home somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some things you've had to face in yourself that maybe just felt hard or dark or, or your family has had to face that, on the opposite, have that have been maybe a little bit of a cost you've had to count uh, in in really pursuing warm, genuine relationship, either living abroad or domestically back here in the states. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like there's been there's been genuine cost um, for us as a family and and for our children in particular in in moves. Uh, our oldest daughter, uh, we left Morocco right around the time she turned ten. Uh, and we moved to Southern California. We were there for six years. And then when we moved from Southern California to Ohio, our youngest daughter was uh, around 10. And we have found that that seems to be 
a, a very tender and vulnerable age uh, to be uprooted. Uh, and it was really painful. Mm-hmm. It was painful for them. Um, and it was painful for us because you, as a parent, you, you, you want to take it on yourself. Can I, can I pay that price myself? And you, you can't. Uh, and to watch, uh, to watch uh, your child suffering. Uh, our son had a pretty significant, uh, our, our middle child, our son, had a pretty significant uh, form of dyslexia younger. And, and it was actually very stressful for him being put in a school, uh, a French language school in Morocco, uh, where after a while we thought, I think he's going to do better teaching everybody and all of his friends English than he's going to be able to learn these foreign languages. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was hard. It was very hard. Um, I think that, um, uh, we didn't make uh, these kinds of decisions just sort of randomly or independently. In fact, uh, our decision to move from Morocco to California and then from California to Ohio, we we uh, uh, asked our children. We said, "You're you're you're an equal vote here. You, you've got you've got uh, the ability to be able to say yay or nay to that." Uh, and they were younger and more naive when we left Morocco. Uh, um, but having them engaged was important. And then when they were older, when we moved to, to Ohio, and uh, I think that really helped to, to know that we were not dragging them unwillingly somewhere. Um, and, and so I felt like that, that, that helped uh, some. I, I think that, you know, for me, uh, personally, and I would say to perhaps I would say this is true for Dottie as well. Um, God's called us to love everybody, and sometimes I'm challenged. Like, can I love somebody who was like myself, growing up in that small town, who had all of these judgments that were completely uninformed, and uh, and so that to me. Is I just not wanting to give in to, to anger, not wanting to give in to just you know blanketly judging people, and 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 frankly, uh, you know, as a Christian and hearing all these polls about what evangelicals believe right now uh, is really troubling to me. And yet, how do I love them uh, by engaging them and and uh, uh, encouraging? Whatever to whatever degree I can, encouraging them into something broader. It's 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 so easy just to make a different other, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Just okay. Now I'm on another side, and now the other is this, and I feel a little bit more righteous indignation. I feel sort of justified now and shutting these people out and not extending them the same love that I experienced from God, and I you know, extend to you know myself or, and I oh, that's that is really good, and it's always the the caution in this is that, you know, I, I hear people talk about, you know, use the term woke and yeah. I, I, I want to run and hide when somebody says they're woke. Cause I know, I feel like my experience of that has been now they're just judging a different group mm. or I can come off that way in the rhetoric. And it is, it is really hard, especially when, when God has brought you through and you've learned a lesson and to not despise where you've been in the past. 
it, it it's really hard, and I think it's one of the highest marks of maturity, mm-hmm. and the thing that you know that God always works on us in for our growth. Um, I think also what you said just about the transitions that your family went through. I know that it had to be hard to watch your kids go through those, but I know that couldn't have been easy for you and Dottie. There's always an upside where if you make a, a balance sheet, maybe the cost is, you know, less than the benefit, Like, but it, it doesn't always pencil out in a pretty way. And you don't always feel when you've moved, the full implications of that were not available in the place that you moved from. It's only in the new context that that really comes to bear, right? Yeah, it sure does. That's so true. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I, and I know that we, I just, I love that as just a, a, a parental caution to all of us, you know, uh, my wife and I are, are looking to become parents for the first time and, yeah. and we, we have itchy feet. We want to, we want to live in England and we want to live in Canada and we wanted, we wanted to go here and go there. And, just just knowing that that has really had implications for us as we've moved around as well, but even more so as a family unit. Just uh, I love that you you have taken it so seriously, um, as I think people do that for career and things all the time. Uh, yeah. You know, and and we we tend to look at things sort of economically or or have some other considerations. But um, and I I appreciate all that you guys have done to really parent your kids through that. Well, you guys have been very open, so. Uh, but that's that's important for people to hear uh, too, as they consider maybe living abroad as well or, or making a move like that. Um, Bill, I can't believe our time is flying by here. I I just I guess I'll ask one last question for sake of time, um, but just really practical. We often end our, our shows with kind of a stretch or something we can do. Someone's listening and they really want to get connected with with foreigners in their community. Um, what are some what are some good ways to do that? What are some good things we've? I think you've touched on some of them, and and kind of how do you work around language barriers uh, mm-hmm. with within that? Okay, yeah. Well, one of the wonderful things about any community that one lives in is you, you've got local schools, uh, and uh, those local schools have got children of immigrants in those schools, and um, and and the schools are crying out for help. Um, you know, an hour a day to be able to come and tutor um, <clears throat> an immigrant child by reading to them uh, would be welcomed in in, in your local school. Uh, your local library, uh, chances are they have some type of a English language opportunity, learning opportunity for immigrants in the community, and they're always looking for volunteers there. It may be that your church uh, is wanting to engage in something like that. And I feel like why not take advantage of the agency of some institutional help to kind of get you over the hump? I think that in our minds, we make this thing so cataclysmically huge that it paralyzes us from doing anything. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down to another part of the neighborhood. I don't know anybody there. And I'm going to walk in where there are a bunch of immigrants, and I'm going to suddenly, you know, befriend them and all. No, there are all kinds of opportunities like that. There might be a local uh, – I like going to different kinds of grocery stores and restaurants here. And um, 80% of the time, nothing really happens. But over time, people start to warm up uh, because they may be suspicious. They may wonder what I'm doing there. But just over time, things start to happen. I mean I – I went to this place. By the way, if you live in Columbus, Ohio, 
the best cappuccino you can find is at a gas station. Really? Morse Road in Cleveland. It's a shell station run by Eritreans, and they make an outstanding cappuccino. And you can sit there, and they can, they'll can they make you an Eritrean meal as you're sitting at the counter inside the, the gas station. And I was sitting there uh, the other day, and I hadn't eaten there before, and I thought, I'm going to use this excuse. I love food. And this guy starts cooking. Then come to find out he's been in the country for 14 years. He can't go back because he would be conscripted into the military for the rest of his life. He hasn't seen his family back home in 14 years. And and I think that um, maybe that's not the leading thing when you meet somebody from another culture, but I think pretty early on somebody really appreciates a listening ear to hear their story. And it may not be as tragic as this gentleman's story is, but it tells the person in a practical way that you love them, that you care enough to hear their story. People don't, people don't listen like, like I think people need to be listened to. And, and to, to give them the honor and respect uh, of their telling their story, which I think is a sacred story, uh, really communicates to them that, that, they, that they matter. And, uh, and serving their children, what more can you do to, to, uh, to honor an adult and say, I want to help your child be successful in, in school? So, That's, yeah. Those are great ideas. And I, I love what you said about hearing stories. I think that we tend to project sort of a flat, universal immigrant narrative over people. And I remember for me being chagrined the first time I worked at a hotel and um, there was a woman from Korea who was there. She was the breakfast attendant. She put out the continental breakfast. And she told me one day that um, she was a gynecologist by training. And here she was. And it's just because things don't transfer the same way. But also when, you know, professions and degrees and things don't transfer, neither does status and esteem, right? That's right. So people that, what a huge part of their story I was missing when, if I just sort of looked at them and said, oh, I kind of know generally what they they are based on the class of people they represent in our country. But you're, you never know who you're walking amongst. Yeah. I mean. Just the other day I was talking with a gentleman who've gotten to know each other because we're in an ESL class together. He's from Venezuela. <clears throat> he has his PhD, uh, did postdoctoral research at the Sorbonne in Paris on 18th century political philosophy. Comes back and is teaching at the premier university in Venezuela. And one day a journalist asks a question about what do you think about what's happening in our country? He answers the question. It gets put out over a number of Latin American uh, journals and Al Jazeera picks it up. And then a general shows up in his office and says, we know exactly what you said and what you think. Um, his son, who actually lives in America, says, uh, Dad, you got to come to America. And my friend says, I don't want to come to America. I want to live in Caracas. I want to live in Paris. I don't want to live in Ohio. Right. And, and he says, Dad, how long do you think you're going to live at the age of 70? in a jail. So he comes. So now he's here and he's stocking vegetables at Walmart. 
And when I and my when I found that out, I said, I said, you know, I am honored that you would tell a story like that and that you would be willing to be humbled in that way. And he said, What do you mean? All work has dignity. Whoa. And I thought You know, we have these ideas about yes. people, and, and, and then you see this is a man who is thriving under real pressure, but nonetheless, and I, uh, he's, he's taking steps towards thriving here. Now he's 72 years old. I mean, I, I, and, 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 and every story is unique. You, you know, you just yeah. cannot generalize these kinds of uh, things. You, you cannot, and I think— that's a good way. I mean, uh, I would keep talking forever. So to me, there's no satisfactory way to end the conversation. No, you better cut it off because you know I, me. I'll keep going. <laughs> so I, I want to keep talking too. But I think that's that's a good word to end on. Thank you, Bill, so much for, for talking with me today. And yeah, uh, Thank you. Um, like I said, I'll probably get you on with Brooke again too because I'll try to, try to rope her into another conversation. <laughs> but thank you so thank much. Thank you, David. Life's not a sequence